This event was recorded live at the 2014 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, my name is Kate Moss, and it is my enormous honour and pleasure to be interviewing probably the most famous interviewer of them all, Lynn Barber. Um, thank, yes, I think a round of applause just... <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, we are miles apart, aren't yes. we? Yes. We're just shuffling. <laughs> Sorry, we won't ruin your house lights. Um, the, the thing that's been hilarious for me, Lynn, has been... I even saw it in the programme. Um, it's all been about Kate Moss <laughs> is going to interview Lynn Barber. <laughs> Whereas, actually, I feel I've got the best seat in the house. Oh, good. Because um, my job is really to ask the questions that any of you would ask if you were here. So what we're going to do is have an entirely intimate, private conversation in front of 500 people <laughs> for about 40 minutes, and then we will have 20 minutes of questions um, at the end, and then we will whip Lynn next door to the signing tent, and anyone who would like to buy copies of the new book, but also anything signed, um, that will all happen then. Um, but the book we're here to talk about today is called A Curious Career. Um, and as it obviously sounds like, it is about Lynn's career from the beginning uh, to us sitting here now. Um, but the thing that you need to know is, it is one of those books that you will sit down and read. And I read it in one go with, as I had owned up to Lynn, I'd like to say a glass of wine, but possibly the glass was filled. <laughs> and you read it from start to finish, and it's just joyous and funny and clever and teaches you loads of things about who we are as well as the job of being an interviewer. But what I loved, starting as we should do in the Von Trapp way at the beginning, um, was this right at the beginning. You talk about a little bit about your background. Many people will know some of that from an education. But you talk about going from Oxford to Penthouse. Yes. <laughs> and then your first celebrity interview in 1969, and you started, started with Salvador Dali. Yes. <laughs> now, now, just tell us a bit about that. And um, actually, I didn't realise how incredibly privileged and lucky yeah. I was. And I sort of thought, oh, celebrity interviewing, it's a doddle, you know. And uh, he'd asked me, I mean, I meant to go to Paris for the day, but he said, oh, don't go, come back tomorrow, and got me a hotel room and, and the next day and the next day. So I had four days with Salvador <laughs> Dali. And as my questions were pa fairly pathetic in those days, you know, he more or less interviewed himself. And he'd sort of say, ask me about my habits. And I'd say, oh, yes, what are your habits? <laughs> <laughs> he would say masturbation. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> How old were you at this stage? I was 26, 27 right. or something. I mean, I wasn't a kid. But it, I was very naive. But I mean, especially naive in that I thought, oh, well, celebrity interviewing is very easy. I'll do that all the time. And, of course, uh, I then realised that a lot of celebrity interviews aren't much fun. They're not four days in the Hotel Marie's. They're hard work. You know. <laughs> but, anyway, that was a very good start, and I was very lucky indeed. But one of the things I loved about the descriptions of that, not just that you were there for the day, but he really wouldn't let you go, yes. um, but that all the people who came in and out his wife Gala and the captain, all these strange creatures. And so was that um, your first sort of hint that celebrities, even though it wasn't probably used as a word, were different, that there was an entourage, not just the person themselves you had to 
get round. Probably it was. Yes, I hadn't thought about that. But I mean, because I had interviewed um, a certain amount of writers for Penthouse magazine, and of course <laughs> I'd also um, interviewed all these um, weirdos. I mean, we had this ongoing series called Parameters of sexuality in which I interviewed foot fetishes and things like that, but they weren't glamorous. His was probably, yes, the most glamorous lifestyle. It was a hotel of a splendor I'd never, never seen. Um, and, yeah, things like um, a theatre troupe from America, I think it was called Joseph Papp's Living Theatre or something, sort of turned up in the suite for a party one night, you know, and all sorts of things. And... Yes, I suppose I, I was seeing a really glamorous lifestyle for the first time, yes. And, I, I mean, it, it, it sounds a daft thing to say, but presumably, with someone like Dali, the fact that you had been working for Penthouse yes. was quite handy. Yes, yes, yes. yes. I, think I mean, I never, was... I thought, I never say such a thing. <laughs> no, he, I think he thought it was good fun to give an interview to Penthouse anyway. He'd probably already given one to Playboy, I would imagine. Mm. Um, and then seeing this rather naive English girl added to the fun, you know. Um, so he was, yeah, no, he was enjoying it and I was enjoying it and a good time was had by all. And, and did you come back at that moment and think, actually, this is it? This is what I want to be or to do? Um, I wasn't yet in that position, really. I mean, m my job at Penthouse was just to do whatever anyone asked me to do, so I couldn't... In the writing department, we hope. <laughs> well, actually, no. I, mean, I, I wasn't a model, if that's what you meant. But, I mean, I used to arrange fashion shoots. I used to hire photographers. I did a lot, actually. Yeah, okay. um, and, actually, it was a good training for working in magazines because I got to see all the different departments. Well, they weren't different departments. They were sort of three or four people, you know. Um, so, I'm, I mean, I wasn't at that point in a position to say, I just want to do celebrity interviews, but I did sort of think, oh, if the opportunity arises, I will. Um. And did you see that there was, if you like, an appetite for these people who were us but not us, glittering over there? Is that where it came from? Um, I'm not sure that that sort of what your celebrity appetite that would feed magazines like Grazia. I don't think that has actually started yet. Right. I mean, what was unusual about Dali was that he was on the one hand an, as it were, respectable subject because he was a famous artist, um, but also one who was eager um, to talk about his sex life. You yes. know, so <laughs> a so gift. <laughs> yes. Um, but... Um, I mean, I suppose for, from the point of view of readers of Penthouse, it would have just been an interruption in the, in the, in the girl page, isn't it? Um, but I'm not, I don't think that celebrity appetite had, had started then. And once you got going, when I was reading the book, and, you know, you next interviewed Gore Vidal, I love the idea that Gore Vidal is your number two. two so yes. I bet he hated that, didn't he? Your, yeah. being your second interview. I'm not sure I told him that. No, no. <laughs> But once you got going um, and you had, uh, you were building up a reputation, did you make rules for yourself that you would never do this sort of person or that sort of person? Or was it on a, a, an individual basis you made your choices? Yes, although that was much later. I mean, all the time I was at Penthouse, I was just doing bits and bobs mm. of whatever I was asked to do. Um, and then when I... And then I had time off to have children. And then when I went back to work to the Sunday Express magazine... 
it was to do a rather boring formulaic series called Things I Wish I'd Known at 18. Uh, same format every mm. time. Um, and I did choose my people for that. Um, but I think what you mean is when I really had freedom of choice. Yes. Um, I've always... Well, I've always tried to do artists because I don't think they get enough attention. I, I don't like doing actors because I'm not very good at them. Um, and I hate doing sportsmen. And the other reason for not doing sportsmen is I always feel newspapers have zillions of pages mm -hmm. devoted to sport. So why should one of my pages be so devoted be to sport? Over. And I always say I don't like doing... Um, I, I don't know quite how best... To I don't like doing wives, but by which I mean people who are only famous by virtue of their partner. So, I mean, it could be husbands or whatever. And I don't like doing victims who are only famous because their daughter was murdered or something. Yes, um, yes. And I don't do... I'm making a lot of jokes. There's a lot of people. <laughs> just saying, there's plenty in there. I, I, again, I don't quite know how tactfully to express it. I don't do what I think of as touchy-feely interviews. That's why our chairs are a long way apart. <laughs> yes, where you're meant to have a box of Kleenex on the table and burst into tears, you know. Um, I, I run a mile, basically, from that. Um, so I'm not very good at empathetic interviews. I prefer something a bit more combative. Well, I mean, spe speaking of that, one of the... Um, I mean, actually, every anecdote I remember makes me <laughs> giggle for a different reason. But you do talk about uh, interviewing Marianne Faithful as the rudest yes. person you would ever... You know, this f fabulous, monstrous person. So could you just say a little bit about how that interview came about and why she was so rude? Well, I think she's probably always rude. Always. I don't know, you know, but... Um, it wasn't personal. No. Uh, presumably she had something to promote. Oh, she, yes, she was in a French film called Intimacy, Intimacy. or something, and... She claimed to be promoting that, although actually she had such a tiny part in the film, she, you know, it made no difference. But um, I think she probably likes doing interviews, you know. And, it, oh, and she was going to be photographed by David Bailey, who's an old friend of hers. Um, so probably that was the inducement. Mm. And then, um, but, well, it went badly right from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> um, I got a phone call from Bailey's studio about sort of... Um, I think she was meant to be there at noon or something. Somebody saying about... I got a phone call about an hour later saying, you don't by any chance know where Marion Faithful is, do you? And I said, well, I thought she was at your studio. Um, so she started off incredibly late mm. and then threw lots of tantrums in the studio, apparently, although I didn't witness those, um, about not liking the clothes or the hair or the makeup or whatever. Um, so my interview, which had been supposed to be at, say, 2 o'clock after she'd finished mm. photographs, just went on being postponed and postponed and postponed. And this ghastly Frenchman that she was with said, ''Oh, don't worry, we give you dinner.'' <laughs> and, in fact, I was meant to be having a really nice dinner with some really nice friends, you know, but the attitude was, ''You just hang around yeah, forever.'' You should be grateful to be Yes, safe. and... Uh, and having hung around, I mean, it really was sort of like five hours late by then. Mm. I then threw quite an impressive tantrum myself, <laughs> and, uh, which uh, I will do when push comes to shove, um, and said, look, 
you know, these photographs that you're taking are meant to go with an article, but there isn't going to be an article unless I interview her, you know, so we've got to do the interview. And this whole room full of sort of trendy young things sort of stare at me. Right. <laughs> um, but actually, David Bailey was quite good. He got the point. And so then we go to a restaurant, and she immediately starts shouting at the waiter and, you know, is unpleasant. Her boyfriend starts shouting at me as soon as I ask a question about drugs or something. Um, and, uh, and she shouts at him. They all shout at the PR. I mean, it was just a sort of amazingly jangly, horrible atmosphere, um, which, had I not been going to write about it, was, you know, it would have been hard to sit through. But as it was, I was clocking up, thinking, oh, yeah, and then there's this, and then there's that, and then there's the way she treated the waiter, and then there's the way she treated the chauffeur. You know, I just think, oh, I've got so much to write about, and I, I really <laughs> liked it. And do you, in those circumstances, you're, you talk about, you know, your tape recorders and how absolutely essential that is for remembering it, mm. but if you're in that odd, semi-social, but also professional, do you just skedaddle back to the hotel as soon as you can and, and write it down? Yes. Um, I mean, I... I think with that one, the tape recorder caught most of it. But, I mean, yes, I always do try and um, write some notes immediately because there's often something that struck me the, the first moment I walked into the room, which isn't on the tape and which I will then forget, but which is just very basic things like, oh, she's far smaller than I expected mm. or um, she smells peculiar or, you know... <laughs> um, or, or this room is so cold, why is this room so cold? Um, and if I don't remember to write them down immediately, I'll have forgotten them, and, and they're quite significant, I think. That, just that sort of first hit, is when you walk into a room, meet somebody, and something strikes you very strongly, and it isn't necessarily words, so it's not necessarily going to be on the tape. When you've made your decisions about who you're interviewing and of course as time has gone on um, you know it's not the interviewer here and the celebrity there you know you go in <laughs> you know a, as an equal if you like um, do you go in hoping that they will be as you think or that they won't be oh that they think? won't be that they won't be as exactly the same as in their previous interviews mm -hmm. you know I, I hope that I can get some slightly different take on them but, I mean, on the other hand, you mustn't, as it were, fake it. I mean, if they actually do come over um, as, you know, someone like Jane Asher, sort of incredibly nice, incredibly kind, incredibly sensible, um, it's sort of tempting to think, oh, let's, let's make her a monster, you know, but you, <laughs> you can't, you know, you mustn't. Who, who has surprised you most, do you think? who was least either nice or nasty? Um, well, I suppose the one that's in the book was Martin Clunes, which was very... Because um, I'm always being told... You know, my editor wants me to interview actors, you know, week after week after week after week. I'm always saying no. Um, but I thought, well, here is an actor who I really admire as an actor and... I'm a devotee of his Doc Martin series. <laughs> I can practically recite it. You know. um, so I thought, well, this is a chance to 
to do an actor really sort of um, properly and uh, admiringly. Um, and thus I started out. Um, but he's quite irritable, and I could see the irritation building. And, uh, and then he sort of launched into a rant about journalists and how they always got things wrong, which was really peculiar. And actually, I was a little bit annoyed that my editor sort of censored it in that she said, but you've got three pages of this stuff. It sounds, it sounds obsessive and mad. Yeah. And I said, well, that's what it sounded like. You yeah. know, I mean, yeah. I wanted it to be obsessive and mad. Um, but she said, but it's quite boring for the reader. And I said, well, yes, but it, I thought it was quite significant. Mm. So that was surprising, that it was an actor who I actually set out thinking for once, this is mm. an actor I'll get on with, and ended, you know, really sort of big sulks, as it were. And, uh, and a very embarrassing bit at the end, because um, he, I'd ordered a taxi, but it hadn't come, so I had to sort of... Stand around sulking, you know, for, <laughs> for 15 minutes or something. So that was odd. Um, there's people... I mean, I slightly suspect that I really quite like Lord Sugar, um, although nothing has yet happened to make me like him. But I sort of feel that there's a sort of... Actually, there's a sort of warmth there that I quite like. And then I was very surprised recently I interviewed Margaret Hodge, and I usually don't like politicians. And I liked her enormously. Um, but the Sunday Times don't seem in a hurry to publish it. I don't think I was, <laughs> I, I don't think I was meant to like her. That, that, that's a weird thing, because, um, you know, at certain points in the book, you ask really, you know, important and serious questions about what the reporter's role is. Yes. And... Sometimes you answer that, and sometimes you, you tell a different story. So do you think your role as a writer, first and foremost, and maybe a reporter second, is to tell the truth or to uh, pull away the veil? Um, you know, what, what purpose do you think you're Well, I think you have to tell the truth. Otherwise, what are you doing? You know, I mean, I'm not writing fiction. Um, so you tell the truth in as interesting a way as possible. And if they've given a good interview, I like to use as much of their quotes as possible. Mm. Um, if they're interesting, then the, the article will be sort of 50, more than 50%, sort of 70% them talking. Problems arise when they haven't said enough to be yeah. interesting. Um, so then it's sort of up to me to present my take on them. Um, and that gives you more freedom as a writer um, because you're almost picking your topic. Um, but I don't think that's what the point of interviews should be. I mean, I'm a bit wary of interviewers who... There are some interviewers who've got stuck in having to be funny, for instance. Mm. And I think if you have to be funny, then that cuts out a whole lot of people you could be interviewing yeah. or, and also perhaps slants the piece in a way that you don't want to. And um, one, of the, <laughs> one of the things that I found so wonderful about the book um, is that you are very uh, honest about yourself yes. as well as the people you're interviewing. Um, and so there, you, you, you talk about some of the mishaps 
so you always have a spare tape recorder. But there's a lovely story with the dog coming in and the water. Oh, being, yes. yeah. yeah, well, that was Martin Clunes, actually. His dog wagged. I had to tape record on a table but like that. And his dog came very deliberately. I thought, I wonder what that dog's doing. <laughs> so he came and just um, uh, wagged his ta tail over the table and knocked over a glass of water onto my tape recorder. And that was the end of the tape recorder. And Martin Clunes said very happily, oh, dear, well, I expect you've got enough. And I said, no, no, I've got another tape recorder. <laughs> but I wondered if his dog had been trained to Yes, had been a sort of nod, nod, yes, or yes. in your thumb, yes, rover. But, but, but it also went off, didn't it, in your handbag once at the ambassador's Oh, oh yes, that was terrible. Um, interviewing Christopher Hitchens in um, Washington, he'd... Um, and, and I was going for the weekend or for two or three days or something. Um, and he said, we've been asked to lunch with the British ambassador. Um, and he said, but, um, you know, you, you can come, but this isn't part of the article and you mustn't record it. But because I picked him up from his flat and interviewed him a bit before and in the car going there, I had actually got my tape recorder. And it was my first venture into these new um, digital, tiny little things. And so there we were at lunch. And suddenly, a, a voice comes out of my handbag <laughs> and starts yakking away. And this tape recorder somehow managed to switch itself on. It must have managed to play itself back. And it was sort of um, talking quite loudly and confidently <laughs> because I'd forgotten about the tape recorder. I was just literally looking at my handbag thinking, that is extraordinary. <laughs> <laughs> and then I remembered the tape recorder and I was sort of pummeling it, trying to shut it up. Um, but, yeah, no, that was extremely embarrassing. And actually, I thought subsequently it was so odd what happened. Mm that I wonder if in the embassy they have some super-duper like scanning yes. thing that can, can, that can detect that I've got a tape recorder. Oh, they probably do. And, and activate it. Or Maybe they something. have like a robot dog disguised as a yes, femur or something. They, yes, yeah, yes, it's they the version of wagging the tail, tail isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, but I, I also got the impression when I was reading that... Um, on the one hand, you know, the, the sort of sobriquet that was attached to you, the demon barber and all of yeah. that, that although that is flattering in one way to be so, so dominant, if you like, in the field, that you actually didn't really like that that much. Is no, that, no. It, and it just seemed very peculiar, because especially because I've been working at the um, Sunday Express and winning press awards for my interviews. And then I moved to this new paper, The Independent on Sunday, and was writing what I thought of as sort of the same sort of interviews, a bit longer than I'd written for the Sunday Express, but the same sort of mix of some of them favourable, some of them unfavourable. And But everyone picked up on the unfavourable ones mm. and, um, and started calling me Demon Barber and talking about hatchet jobs and things. And... It, yes, it was puzzling to me. I just sort of thought, but I haven't become more hatchety since mm. I moved. Mm. And I think it was possibly because... Well, possibly because of Jimmy Savile's one that was early on. Um, and also, I wrote a rather hostile piece about Melvin Bragg, and nobody had ever criticised Melvin Bragg at all. 
before. <laughs> so that sort of got attention, I think. Um, and yes, and Mar Michael Parkinson took offence. Yes, he, absolutely, you, yeah. and sort of said, "I'm a friend of his," and I'm. Um, so, uh, well, it was just that the public picked up on the hostile ones much more than favourable ones, and it's possible that there were a few months at the beginning of the time I was at the Independent on Sunday when probably the, the percentage of hatchet jobs was higher than usual sort of thing. Mm. But lots of things that, I mean, lots of things that they called hatchet jobs. Um, I mean, I commented on the fact that the actor Richard Harris had this very odd habit of... Uh, what is called with schoolboys playing pocket billiards, if you know what that means. <laughs> he kept rummaging around in his trousers the whole time, and it was very distracting. Um, and it was very noticeable, and uh, I put that in the piece. And that was called a hatchet job because of that, but actually all the rest of it had been just sort of saying what fun he was. And everything. Do, do you think it, um, the, it stopped you interviewing people who were, became scared and therefore said, no, I don't want to... Um... Well, it, it, it always does and still, still does. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I've sort of come to the conclusion that actually that suits me because the ones actually who tend to be scared are actors who think, um, oh, supposing she doesn't like me or perhaps I'll say the wrong thing, and actually, there are people I don't particularly want to interview anyway, you know. So, um, and I think that with people, um, I mean, I, I can be reassuring, actually. Um, I, I don't advertise it, but I mean, um, I, I can be sort of nice and easy and say things like you don't have to answer this if you don't want right. to. We won't tell anybody you're <laughs> yes, I'm softer than you might think. Um, and so but anyway, no, I, I live with it. I mean, I think it's a sort of odd sobriquet, but it helped me, I suppose, to get known at the beginning, yeah. so that was so, good. So, I mean, talking about rummaging around in trousers, as, mm. as we were, um, <laughs> I'm afraid we can't avoid talking about Rafa Nadal and his pants. Yes. Um, because this, is, this was your first experience, actually, of the, seeing, what, him. Uh, seeing him, yes. but also the vileness of Twitter yes. subsequently. So just oh, yes. tell a bit of that story. Well... I mean, I'd, I'd spent the day, I was meant to interview him in an Italian tennis tournament in Rome. Um, and so I'd spent the day being sort of wheeled around by his management and PRs and people um, <coughs> watching a match which he was in, but actually it only lasted for about five minutes. I mean, he just demolished somebody very quickly. And they'd spent the whole day um, telling me what a wonderful charming, unspoiled, lovely, polite, immaculate boy he was. And they, okay, they kept calling him a lad, which I found fairly offensive, because he was already number one by yeah. then. He was 24. He was yes. a multimillionaire, you know. I thought, well, he can't be a lad, whatever he is. Um, and I didn't finally get to interview him until the evening, after what felt to me like a very long, boring day, <laughs> you know. Um, and it was in his horrible hotel, which was some sort of sports, uh, sort of golf club, sports centre thing. Um, and I go into his room, and he's lying there on a massage table with his trousers undone and um, his Armani underpants on show. And he didn't sort of... 
he didn't even attempt to raise himself or to you know I mean it was very rude I thought and and I'd listened all day to people saying how polite and lovely and charming he was and the other thing was that he was on this massage table and obviously with no intention of moving and there was actually nowhere for me to sit and so I was sort of perched on the edge of a table, very uncomfortable. And he just lay there with his arms behind mm. his thing and his uh, underpants showing. And I just thought, ugh, you know. And, uh, and there was also a thing that he, um, he had a, a manager. His manager was in the room. And they had a sort of double act game whereby Rafa would pretend not to to speak English and the PR and would turn to the PR and the PR would talk away in Spanish and basically tell him what to say mm. the whole time. Mm. And that was quite irritating. But I noticed that when Rafa wanted to, he could hear and understand a question and respond mm. quite directly to it. I also have a daughter who speaks Spanish, so I was able to play the tape back um, <laughs> to her <laughs> afterwards. <you know. laughs> So if I lobbed him a slightly awkward question, there would be a lot of consultation with the PR yeah. who would say, um, I think my way into it was asking what he felt about Tiger Woods, who had just been um, exposed. exposed. Yeah. And, and, you know, at the PR's urging, he said that all we care about is his golf. And I was trying to say, but he's supposed to be a role model for young men and what do you think about that um, and then jabber 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 went on for ages but some very sort of nothing answer came back but um, that was a case of where something I'd mentioned earlier where I hadn't act, the quotes weren't there to make a riveting piece so I thought well let me vent my spleen which actually I never have before about this sports machine mm. um, which acts very much like Hollywood studios did in the old Hollywood days of um, they sort of assign a biography and even a character, a personality to um, their players and just say sort of stick to the script. So there's no chance of any sort of interesting interaction with them. And um, so I wrote about that and actually all... I, I then got about a million um, tweets from people saying they hoped I died a slow, lingering death of cancer. I mean, you know, one after the other. And I'd only just joined Twitter, so I thought, oh, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not very keen on this, Twitter. Um, did it upset you, or did, you, did well, it make a cross? The first one I read, I thought, what? You hope mm. I get cancer? Why? You know. And then I realised that that was one of millions. Um, and, and then I thought, do they all confer? Because, you know, they could have thought of other things than all saying the same yeah. thing. Um, so I was quite puzzled, quite intrigued. But actually, I did go through them all because here and there were some quite interesting um, stories from people who'd had experience of the, of the sort of sports publicity machine, some of which I put onto the real sports journalists that, the Sunday Times, you know, mm. wanting to tell stories about drug-taking. Yeah. Not, I hasten to say, not Rafa Nadal drug-taking, but 
drug-taking mm. stories. Um, so it, it, it did produce some sort of gold among an awful lot of dross. And, and also, it, it seemed, reading that and also, you know, earlier uh, interviews with actors like, such as James Stewart, and that it was terribly similar to the way that the old Golden Age studios in Hollywood protected their people. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, I suppose that was still just, just about mm. still going on. And I did have this very instructive... Um, interview with um, Dirk Bogard when he had he more or less stopped acting and had become a writer and I was interviewing him about his book um, and he um, but he made a sort of film star number out of it you know I had to be greeted by the publisher's PR and then I had to be greeted by his Publicist, and it had to be tea and claridges, and we had to send a limousine, and he wouldn't do photographs the same day because he had to have hair and makeup and blah blah. And I thought, well, this is odd because now you're a writer. I thought you would have changed, as it were, <laughs> our our writer's more sloppy. Um, <laughs> <Had habits. a laughs> but he um, he said, oh no, your pu your public will be disappointed if you don't arrive in a limousine. And if you don't have a revenue, and all, of the, and I've noticed this that actors—I don't think they do it so much now—but actors of his generation always talked about my public. My public will be disappointed. Um, Cilla Black—I haven't actually interviewed her, but I've sort of encountered her um, socially. She's a great one for my public. My public requires me to do this, or my public mm -hmm. don't mm -hmm. require me to do that, mm -hmm. and. You, you never hear writers doing that, do no. you? Even, even <laughs> we're, we're thrilled to have 20 people in the audience. It's <laughs> a completely different sort of... Public. No, but that idea that there is a, a sort of body of people who you own, I don't think... Possibly J.K. Rowling, would she think that? No, no. I, no, no. Um, it made a deliberate decision to you know, do one or two things with children. Yes. And, you know, do that sort of event, but not take part in a circus no. sort of thing. Yeah. And, 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 in fact, that's a question that I particularly wanted to ask about... There's all the conversation about all the famous people you've met, and, and there are many, many more stories here. But, actually, at the bottom of it, you're a writer. Yes. Um, and that's what is very interesting about the book is that you include some of the pieces that have been most well-known um, and possibly most controversial or have defined yeah. different points in your career, but also the way you put the book together. Um, and I wondered if you found writing the book, is it the same sort of writing? Do you feel the same sort of things as when you're working to a deadline, you've got to represent somebody else in 3,000 words, 5,000 words? How do you divide those two parts of your writing head? Yes, it, it is different, and mm. in a way, um, having a deadline is, is good for me because um, my thing about writing is that I enjoy tinkering and tinkering and tinkering and actually will go on tinkering until I've got another job to do, you know, so, um, or a deadline or something. Um, so it's quite good for me. And I suppose the interviews are actually more intensely written um, than than when I'm writing in my own voice. Um, but I'd been told, I think, apropos my last book, An Education, that I, I sort of rushed at things and I must slow down a bit. Um, so I was trying to write in a slightly slower, more ruminative 
style, but then I get bored, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I get bored with myself, you know. And I think, oh, you know, hurry up, get to the end of this chapter. So um, I'm not... It is a different way of writing, and um, with interviews, I feel more, as it were, responsible, um, more responsible to the person I've interviewed, to the readers, trying to remember that some of the readers will be huge fans of this person I'm writing about, mm. while others won't know anything about them. That's always quite a tricky judgment because, mm. um, you know, if you say that Hilary Mantel was born here and grew up there, I mean, some of the people reading that will know that by heart, you know, and for other people you're telling it for the mm. first time. So, um, so that has to be negotiated. I, I think of writing journalism as sort of various problems that have to be negotiated, really, whereas writing for myself is more a question of thinking what do people want to know, as it were. And do you, you're very honest about once the film of an education came out, not just the book publicity, yeah. but the film as well, um, and you were suddenly thrown... Um, you know, as, as prey into the yes. uh, business of being interviewed yourself. Yes. That you didn't altogether like it, but you felt more sympathy than you had hitherto felt. I felt, yes. Are uh, there things that you wish you hadn't written now, looking back, or do you actually feel in the end you're proud of what it, you did? In the book, in, in, in education, I mean, the problem always was my parents. Mm. Um, and... And I'd always thought that I will wait till my parents die till writing about... I, I'd always thought I would write about them and about um, the con man I went out with and all that. But I thought I'll wait until they die. But, but then my husband died before he was 60 and my parents were still trucking along merrily through their 80s and eventually um, didn't die till they were 92. And I thought, well, supposing I die like David at 60, um, I won't have written it, you know. So mm. I thought, I did this bad thing that I think writers always do. I thought, well, I'll write it, and then I'll put it in a drawer and not publish it. But, of course, you, you can't do that if no. you're a writer. No. You want people to read it, don't yeah. you? Yeah. So I published it, but I think it, mm, I think it did upset my mother, yeah. And in terms of... Um, my, um, this is going to be my final question, so... Be ready to put your hands up. <laughs> um, you deal very um, subtly with the ways in which it can be complicated if you're interviewing somebody who is a friend or a friend of a friend. But you also have a wonderful chapter, I felt, about how you went to interview Tracy Emin. And out of that came an important friendship. Absolutely. Now, is that actually yeah. just straightforward? Or is that quite complicated to have people who are interviewable by other people, but they then become on part of your circle, if you like. Um, no, I mean, it was just odd, because um, I did, you know, I interviewed her, not, um, never having met her, but admiring her work, and I thought we got on very well, but actually, it was her who sort of pursued it and made it into a friendship, you know, mm. and kept asking me out. And um, um, did, did, did that, was that important, because you wouldn't have felt you could do that? Yes, just, exactly. I, I, I would have thought she was just somebody I interviewed with, uh, interviewed and we got on well. But then she kept asking me to things. And then when my husband died, she was really a total brick, you know, and kept 
uh, typically madly, actually, thought that I'd got agoraphobia and kept saying, have you been out today? You know? <laughs> um, and, uh, I mean, uh, it wasn't a problem, agoraphobia. But anyway, she, she proved to be a good friend. So that became a real friendship. But, um, and then I, what else did I do? I went to the Venice Biennale where she was showing and wrote about that. So by that stage, I was a friend of hers, but I was also mm. reporting mm. on her. Um, and, with, and at the same time, she was splitting up with her boyfriend. Um, and there was a demarcation. Don't put the splitting up with boyfriend in the article, so I didn't. And then when she turned 50 a couple of years ago, or last year, um, I wrote a, a sort of retrospective about her. Um, and that's hard, because by now I sort of feel I know her so well. Mm. Um, maybe not seeing things very clearly, you know. And, uh, and, and she was quite surprised by some of the things I said. Um, but, and she was a bit upset because I'd, I'd said that the last boyfriend was an absolute horror, which he was. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, no, we're still friends, you know. But <laughs> I, I don't recommend... I don't think really you should write about friends. And, but the thing that, um, the other thing I don't think you should do as an interviewer is go and interview people, and you see this with young girls a lot, thinking, oh, I could marry him, or I could go out with him. I mean, they're going because they fancy the person, right. not, you know, not really for the sake of the readers at all. And, uh, well, sometimes they do marry them, sometimes yes. it's okay. <laughs> But I'm not a fan of that sort of journalism. Thank you. Right. Um, we have a couple of roving mics, or maybe just one. Oh, no, we've got two. Um, right. Questions. Hands up. Gentleman up there, would you mind waiting for the mic? I'm so sorry. It's the only exercise the poor uh, people get at the event, is going up and down the stairs. Thank you. How long do you allow for an interview, and does it vary? And how long does it take you to write it up? Um, well, Sorry, I, chaps. Did, did everybody hear the question? Great, lovely. It was how long? Um, well, I always ask for two hours, um, but often they're on a very tight schedule, and often I have to make do with less than that. Um, I refuse to do any what I mean, I can't write an article of the length I have to write without spending at least an hour with them. So, I'm, so there's some sort of negotiation around whether it's going to be... Um, you know, one and a half hours or whatever. Um, and uh, of course, the other thing that really, makes it really hard to make that calculation is that some people talk so fast that they can, you know, if you're interviewing sort of Jonathan Ross or something, I mean, he can deliver you a million pages of quotes in about <laughs> ten minutes, you know, um, whereas other people are terribly slow. Um, and so it's... Uh, you know, I'd always like to have more time, or I think I'd like to have more time. And then I, I always say I need at least two weeks to write it up, um, and once in a while that gets squeezed. Um, but I, I just don't enjoy writing quickly. I like sort of tinkering about, and I'm lucky in the, you know, in my extreme old age to be able to sort of make the rules to some extent but I mean if I were a beginner journalist starting now it would be um, you know interview Bruce Willis for 
10 minutes and write 2,000 words by tomorrow. And that's what they have to do, you know. And I don't, I don't actually think that's, that serves the reader very well, actually. Um, but it happened. There's another question. Lady in the front, thank you. Is there anybody that you would wish you'd interviewed or that we'd really love to interview that you haven't? Um, well, Rupert Murdoch is the one I always, <laughs> always want to interview. But uh, I don't think there's any chance of it ever happening because um, for years I worked for The Observer and I was always writing, please can I interview? But I mean, The Observer was seen as the enemy, so why would he say yes? And now I belong to The Sunday Times. Um, I can't do it because if I was nice about him, everyone would just say she's sucking up to the boss. Um, and, and if I was nasty about him, I'd off with my head, you know. So, um, um, but also, actually, he doesn't give interviews. I'm, I'm sort of happy with people who don't give interviews. That, you know, that's fine. It's when they do give interviews, but not to me, you know. <laughs> and I've just missed Martin Amis yet again, you know. Um, and that happens every time Martin Amis has a book coming out. I write and say, can I interview you? And there's a bit of flim-flam, and it never happens, you know. So, um, so I'm sort of resigned to the idea that there's people I'll never get. Lucian Freud, I long, you know, I really tried for years and years and years. I almost sort of stalked him. I was trying so hard um, to get him, and and he didn't give me an interview. Um, yeah, there's loads of people I'd I'd love to interview, but Rupert Murdoch. I mean, I really feel that when Rupert Murdoch dies and you go to the cuttings library there will not be very much in the way of interviews with Rupert Murdoch and yet he's such an incredibly important figure in 20th century Britain and now in you know 21st century states and everything so uh, he must be one of the most important least interviewed people I would think and do you think that's Wisdom on his part, or yes. folly? Yes. No, I think yes. there's total yes. wisdom on yes. his. He, yeah, he thinks what what what's in it for me, you know, um, and I can see that. Um. Another question. There is a lady there with the red. Thank you. Has there ever been an occasion when you've regretted answering and um, asking a question, um, and by virtue of the response, you regretted it and felt you still had to publish the response? Um, I, I had a very sort of awkward interview with um, Spike Milligan once um, when he, he was clearly, he, it turned out afterwards, yeah, um, he was um, a bipolar or something. He was clearly in the pits of depression, but also incredibly nasty and sort of coming out of with totally negative but also quite racist views which I sort of felt are probably not his real views but it was just a bad day um, and if I'd had my chance over again I would I would have said to the editor look let's not publish this let's just not publish it um, but I think it, it was at the Independent on Sunday, and I think they probably already sort of said I, I was interviewing Spike Milligan or something. It was just doing him clearly at the wrong time and getting a completely negative view of him, and, and that felt bad, yeah. Other question? 
lady in the front and then lady up the back. Um, you mentioned, or Kate mentioned in passing, Jimmy Savile. Um, I wondered what you thought of him and whether you'd heard any rumours before everything came out. Oh, yes. I, I, when I interviewed him in, when he got his knighthood, whenever that was, and I did ask him, you know, I said, people say that you like little girls, and he had a, a sort of... He'd obviously been asked the question before, and he had a sort of fairly smooth answer to that. But, um, I mean, that, <coughs> that was all I could do, you know, because the laws of libel are such that I couldn't sort of say... Well, I, I actually, I did manage to say that there was endless rumours that he liked little girls. Um, but, I mean, you, you can't go around saying that unless you've got some evidence. And I hadn't. It was just Fleet Street gossip. But there was, you know, there was tons of Fleet Street gossip to that effect. Anyone I said I was interviewing Jimmy Savile, they said, you know, he likes little girls. Um, but, I mean, I never got any evidence to stand it up. Um, but at least by, ask, by framing it as a question, I was able to put it out into the article because um, as a question, which at least maybe alerted readers to the fact that this, this could be something. But also, obviously, I had no idea of the scale of it or anything like that. Were you surprised, given that, that um, other editors or investigators or whatever didn't follow up? Follow up? Yeah, well, I... Sooner I've, than this, if it I've, was common, as Well, you uh, no, but apparently, um, I think the News of the World or somebody had done some serious um, digging before the, any of this um, and, um, and not gone to press with it. And that was why he got his knighthood, you know, because they'd... Um, I suppose they couldn't quite make it stand up. And in those days, it would, it would have been very hard to get people... You know, people will sometimes say the pre tell the press things, but then if they correctly refer it to the police and say, will you give evidence and will you stand up in court, then they sort of run away for understandable reasons. Um, Question up there? Uh, can you tell us um, how much time? Uh, oh yes, okay. Uh, how much time you spend preparing for an interview, and what kind of work do you do? What kind of preparation do you do for an interview? I spend as long as I possibly can, and I read all the cuttings. Um, and it, you know, if it's a writer, you read their books. If it's an actor, you try and see their films or whatever. Um, if it's an artist, you look up their work. I mean, basically, all the preparation you do pays off, in my experience. It's always worth doing. But it's now become completely impossible with Twitter and um, Facebook and YouTube and things to sort of feel... I used to sort of read the whole cuttings file and think, oh, I've done it, I've finished my homework. It's now infinite, and I'm supposed to be interviewing Kim Kardashian soon, <laughs> <laughs> which offers such a sea of material, you know. And there's this appalling television program called something about living with the Kardashians. And there is a whole television. There's a whole television channel. If you go past all the shopping channels, you will come to one that shows nothing but the Kardashians, night after night after night. So, I mean, there's a case where I could never say I've done all my possible <laughs> research because it would take me a lifetime. 
Other question? Uh, the lady in the stripy top and then lady in the stripy top. Good Lord. <laughs> is it, where is Wally moment? <laughs> oh. Hello. Were you happy with the way you were portrayed in the film? Very happy, yes. And uh, <laughs> wasn't I lucky? I mean, Carrie Mulligan was at that point unknown and that's it. It was a big breakthrough for her. And, uh, no, it was great. I, you know, I was very lucky to have such a wonderful film made from my book and I, I know so many authors who've had films made of their books and hated them and felt traduced by them um, but uh, it was just bliss for me Lady there and then there'll um, be the question up there will be the last one thank you they, uh, speaking of your research into cuttings, what ever happened to the lady with the house full of oh, cuttings? Oh, yes. Well, she's still there, still with her house, house full of cuttings, not getting any younger. Um, and there's a serious problem about what is going to happen to this wonderful archive when she dies. She's got no kids, she's got no heir. Um, and, you know, there's a terrible fear that the council will just come and chuck it on a skip, you know, or something. Um, and so, I mean, if there's any stray millionaires around here who want to save what I'm sure is worth saving. And I, I, I mean, I hope, that, I, I hope that somebody will pick it up. The trouble is there's no particular use for cuttings anymore. And um, because they've, they, well, they say everything's online. It's not actually all online, but... Um, and also, it would be hard to use that library without her there because her, her classification system, although it works brilliantly for her, would be quite baffling for anyone else, I think. You know. Gentlemen at the back. Were you ever, were you ever uh, edited or censored by a publisher? And were you ever sued by a subject? Um, no, I've not been sent. What was it? Censored or what? Censored or sued? Um, I've been sued over a book review, oddly, um, <laughs> but not for an interview. Um, I mean, I think once or twice with interviews, I've been quite lucky not to be sued. <laughs> <laughs> I made an absolute crashing mistake once where I said that the fashion designer Catherine Hamnett lived with Erastafarian. And if <laughs> I mean, where that came from, I don't know. But <laughs> um, did she write to you? Yes. Well, she wrote the paper. She wrote a very sweet letters, sort of saying, "Could you, you know, my husband, who is not a raspberry, yes. is quite puzzled by this, <laughs> and could you publish a small correction?" Which we duly did. But I mean, if she'd wanted to go yes. to town, she could have gone to town. Yes. <laughs> and to, to, we're just going, you know, coming up to the hour, and so we'll have to stop. But. You have had, and are still having, an extraordinary career. Um, what advice would you give to young women and men starting off now, doing this sort of work? How to be themselves, <laughs> their own writing voice, how to approach the profession yes. in a way that you have well, found it? Journalism is in such a sort of bad way at the moment. It's quite hard to advise them, because certainly you can't just go into a, a low journalistic job and sort of work your way up like I did. I, I would say just if writing's your thing, I mean, fundamentally I'm a writer, um, then just keep writing, keep putting it out in the form of blogs, in the form of articles, whatever. Um, and 
you know, there will eventually, you, you will eventually find your proper groove and you will find your public for it. But it, it would be hard to advise somebody coming out of university with a load of student debt to pay off, you know, whether journalism is a good career. It, it doesn't look like it at the moment, but it might become one again. And the last question, um, as well as your interviewing and, and your passion, and hopefully we will all one day read that interview with Rupert Murdoch, um, is there something else um, in writing or indeed in anything else that you've always thought at the back of your mind all this time, when I have time, I'm going to do dot, dot, dot? Well, I suppose that's what I did in an education in writing about my parents. I, I think perhaps what you mean is, have I ever wanted to write a novel? And for years, I thought I did want to write a novel and just hadn't quite got round to it. Um, and then, actually, at one point, was paid a quite substantial advance by oh, a publisher. <laughs> yes. So nothing drives me on like an, a, an, a commission. Um, <laughs> and so I really, really tried. And I kept sort of trying and saying, no, that's no good. Try this. No, that's no good. And realised that actually it's very different. I don't have any imagination, is number one, you know. So I can't invent characters or scenes or anything. So then if I was writing something that was just basically autobiography or, or some, something that happened to a friend of mine, I think, well, this would be more interesting if I wrote the truth, you know, rather than making it up. So I realised... Um, that, that novel writing is not for me, but I mean, obviously, I respect it, but it's, a, it's quite different, I think, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it is, yes. We, we, we are allowed to make stuff yes. up, and nobody can tell us off for that. <laughs> no. That's what we're paid for. Um, well, on which point? Um, I actually will be back here at half past five talking about, about making stuff up, um, <laughs> so I may see some of you there. Um, but Lynn Barber, it has been an enormous pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, Lynn Barber. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.